Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. My name is Tim Barton, and I am one of the pastors here at the Vine. And I want to start today just by asking you um, this question. Do you believe that God is faithful and righteous in all that he does. Some of you this morning may unequivocally say no to that. And I just want to invite you to just um, hang with me today, even maybe stop right now and ask, um, Lord, give me faith to believe this today. The rest of us probably, well, Tim, you say we're in church. You're getting ready to stand up here and preach to us. So I think the answer is yes, God is faithful and righteous in all he does. And we believe that in our minds. Um, But if you're like me, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? And we think, Lord, why do you allow things or do some of the things that you do? Or we think, Lord, why did you choose to do things this way instead of another way? Or or why do we have to live in this world still with brokenness and sin? Can't you just go ahead and fix it all, Lord? Or maybe even something as simple as, why why can't I just simply earn my way to him like I try to do with everything else in life? It kind of works in other areas. This morning, we're going back to Romans. I say that if you were here last January through February, you know that we looked at Romans chapter one and two um, last year. We're in January again. You'll see a pattern developing. Um, Now we're gonna start in Romans chapter three. Um, And in Romans chapter three um, through, through chapter five in these next couple months. As we come to this today, though, I want, to re- I want to remind you kind of of the setting and the context because I think it's important for where I just, what I just started with. See, the setting and the context here is that, um, you know, we left off where Paul was reminding Christians in Rome um, that they desperately needed God. They desperately needed God to be faithful and righteous in all that he does, um, so to speak. Because Rome was the, was the center of the known world at the time. It was full of influential, wise, and mighty, and powerful people, both Jews and Gentiles. And their thinking was affected by the world around them. Now, is your thinking ever affected by the world around you? Let me say, yes, it is, whether you realize it or not. And the reality is, is that we're all affected in different ways by that. Um, not many people in here know this about me, but when I was a senior, junior and senior in high school, I really enjoyed reading Greek mythology. I, most of you are like, why? <laughs> I just did. But as I was reading this Greek mythology, um, you know, I, I didn't realize how much it was impacting how I viewed God. Because what do you see in all the gods in Greek mythology? They're up there messing with people, right? They're messing with people. So, ooh, let's see what happens if we do this. Ooh, let's see what happens if we do this. Or maybe you've seen the movie Bruce Almighty. You know, there's all sorts of these things. That, and, and these things affect how we think more than we realize. 
So what we want to do today, as, as Paul comes to these um, Christians, Jewish and, and Greek um, Christians, Jewish and Gentiles in Rome, Paul's telling them, hey, I want to come see you. I haven't been able to get there yet. Uh, and he's hearing some objections or some, some arguments from opponents probably coming through letters or through messengers that are coming or both. He's hearing that there are opponents there who are going against the message, the biblical message of the gospel. And so Paul is writing, as we pick up in Romans 3, really Romans as a whole, but he's writing to address those things. And he starts in Romans 1 and 2, and he's like, look, what he's trying to show them, and I can't go back and preach the whole series. It was like a, a 12-week series or something, so you can go back and listen to more of it. But here's a summary and overview. Um, you unrighteous people, guess what? You're worse than you think you are, and you need Jesus. Hey, you righteous people, you, you Jews, Guess what? And this would apply to us today. Guess what? You need Jesus just as much as the people you think are unrighteous. And he starts that way. Now let's pick up in Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And as we do so, I remind you that this is God's perfect and holy word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does, that, does their, un, there's their faithfulness, excuse me, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged." But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the whole world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so again, what, what we're gonna see through this passage this morning is that God is faithful and righteous in all that he does. And the first way we see that is that he has given his word to his people. Let me explain why I say that um, through the passage. Look at verse one. Paul starts here, um, this would be an argument the opponents are making again, um, and he's addressing it. So then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He, he um, includes that second phrase, what is the value of circumcision? Those two questions are the same question. And now, now, let me, now let's back up one more time um, to the very end of chapter two, and, and you'll see why they ask this question. Because at the very end of chapter two, Paul has now, I told you earlier, he was talking about unrighteous and righteous. They all need Jesus. At the end of chapter two, he hones in, he, he zooms in a little bit and he's like, the, he's addressing the Jewish people who were trusting in the fact that they were Jewish people, that they were trusting in heritage. They were trusting in things that they had accomplished. Pastor John preached a great sermon on that in our last one in the series. So if you listen to any of them, go listen to that one because um, it sets this up, all right? And it's showing that they were trusting in the outward signs, the outward things. And Paul told them at the end of chapter two, no, you can't trust in that. 
It's not about the outward things. It's about what God has done inwardly in your heart. You need Jesus. All those benefits pointed to him. That's who you need. And so now we come to chapter 3. And another way of asking what this objection was is, uh, doesn't your argument, Paul, about the importance of being a Jew inwardly instead of outwardly indicate that there's no advantage to the Jew? Or to say it again, Paul, are you saying that being from Abraham, having the sign of circumcision means nothing? If that's true, doesn't that mean that being a Jew has no advantage? So he, he's, he, this, this is how he's saying it all. And here's how Paul responds. No, it doesn't mean that. Very simple, right? No, it doesn't mean that um, because of one main reason. Now, he gives a lot of reasons um, in Romans chapter 9 through 11. He unpacks this a lot further, but, but for one main reason, he says here is that God entrusted the Jewish people with his very word. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 2. He entrusted them with the oracles of God, the very words of God. This word used in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, the, the Greek word that's used, in Acts, it, it's used in Acts 7, 38, Hebrews 5, 12, and 1 Peter 4, 11. And that word means, in, in each case it's used, a New Testament author is saying that these words that are being, this, this word when it's used applies to the oracles from the old, the words from the Old Testament. It, it says that the words from the Old Testament were the very words of God. And so we can't just throw those out. B.B. Uh, Warfield, who's a um, pastor and theologian um, years ago, said that the word refers to the Old Testament as a whole and specific reference, with specific reference to God's promises of salvation. And so what Paul's doing here is saying um, the Jews were entrusted with what was needed to be known. They were trusted with this message of the Savior to come, this message of salvation, this very word of God. And keep in mind that no other group of people from Abraham to Jesus, no other whole group of people. There were individuals I'm sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, but no other group of people had received God's revelation about the coming Messiah and Savior, Jesus. Everyone else in this world faced, they faced things in the world without any hope. They lived in spiritual darkness. They lived in fear and confusion, offering sacrifices to appease the anger of the false gods. But the Jewish people had the light of God's word. They had the promise that God was going to bring salvation in the Messiah to come. And so even in the midst of all of that, those in Israel who were godly continued to look to him to fulfill that promise. However, many didn't have the faith to believe his promises. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But God gave his word to his people. And that was an advantage. Do you know that that's, do you believe that that's an advantage today for you? You see, when, when God talks, when we talk about God's people, we talk about his visible people, 
um, his visible church, right? The invisible church are those who truly trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that's throughout the world, different denominations, whatever, those who truly trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. The visible church are those who profess faith in Jesus and their children. And that is the visible church, right? So when we use that phrase, the visible church, those who grow up in the visible church, those who are part of the visible church have an advantage. What is that advantage? Well, here's what Paul says. That advantage is the word of God. That advantage comes in the fact that the word of God is no ordinary book. The word of God is where God says that he will meet his people by the power of his Holy Spirit, taking it, illuminating it to us, teaching us by it. Now, when I look at you and I say, do you believe that this word of God is an advantage? I think most of us in this room would probably say, of course. Yes, that's an advantage. We're here, aren't we? <laughs> but let me take that a step further. We believe it's an advantage, but... Do we read it? Do we study it? Do we ask God to take it and apply it to our lives? Do we ask other people to help us understand it? Asking him first and then other people. You know, I was thinking this morning about, just overwhelmed this morning as I was praying. I love God's word. but I take it for granted too. I don't always see it as the advantage it should be. How do I know? Because there have been times, I wish I could say they were a long time ago, where I felt that God was prompting me to read his word, but there was a sports article right there on my phone next to it and I chose to read the sport article instead. I'm not saying reading a sport article is bad, but God was prompting me to read his word. Why did I think there was value in picking this up instead? Y'all, I'm a pastor and I do it. I get paid to read God's word, right? Man, this is an advantage. It's why when people come to us and say, Back, you know, when, whether it's with little children, you know, people say, why do y'all, why do you do verses with, with two-year-olds? Because we're teaching them to hide God's word in their heart. Why do you say we're going to continue to teach God's word with elementary kids and middle school kids and high school? Don't they need some other more practical things? This is what they need. And we will not bend from that. And we will grow together in understanding how to do it and what it says. Because this is the advantage we have.
This leads us then to our second observation. God is faithful and righteous in all he does and there is nothing we can do that can change who God is. Our faithfulness or our faithlessness does not change his faithfulness. And that's the argument. They're like, okay, Paul, back to the opponents. Okay, Paul, but what if some are unfaithful? Verse three, what if some are unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Now, Paul's pretty gracious here, actually, um, in the way he poses this question. Um, the reality of the situation is that there had been wide unspread, or widespread unbelief from the Jews, but Paul graciously here says that what if some were unfaithful? He kind of tones it down a little bit. What if some were unfaithful? Does that mean God is not faithful? Paul, in verse, at the beginning of verse four, responds with horror, right? It's like, by no means, uh, may it never be. And again, he deals more thoroughly with this in Romans chapter nine through 11, um, which we'll get to um, in a future time in Romans, like a couple years from now, probably. Um, but Romans three here, it outlines what we see more fully in Romans nine through 11. And he deals with that later. And later in nine through 11, we'll see that, that God will still in a future time save a remnant of the Jewish people before Jesus returns. But in verse four, Paul goes further with that. In verse four, Paul says that this discussion, this question is not just about Jewish people. It's actually about all people. Look at verse four again. By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that even if everyone in the world was unfaithful, even if everyone in the world was a liar, even if everyone in the world made false accusations against God and said that God was not truthful or said that God was unfaithful to his promises, even then, you know what it'll mean? It'll mean that everyone else, they are all liars. God is still true. God is still faithful. God is still righteous. God's faithfulness to his word is part of who he is. Our faithlessness does not change that. If he were not faithful, he would not be God. Instead, he would be a liar. And Titus 1-2, it's crazy how all of God's word works together where Paul's talking um, to Titus, Titus 1-2, it says, God who cannot lie. Like we're told, God, God's not, God can't lie. It's not part of who he is. And so then again, even if the whole world lines up against him, he is still true and faithful. Let me just make that practical. When there is a challenge in your mind, my mind, and things we see, our human reason, there's something that says, that we experience that says, God might not be faithful in this. This shouldn't be this way. 
this shouldn't be happening this way. When we look at that, God is always right. God is always right. And I think you heard from the beginning, we don't always understand it. We don't always like it. And and I'm going to show you in a minute. Actually, I'll just do it now. There's a place to express that. We can see examples all throughout the Psalms. Um, Something called a Psalm of Lament. And it's where the psalmist cry out to God, this isn't right, I don't understand, I don't like this. And there's that sense of wrestling with God and praying with God and asking him to change things and working in those things. It always starts with, here's who God is. Then there's this whole flood of stuff, right, in these Psalms of Lament. But where does the psalmist always come back? Psalm 73 is a good example. Nevertheless, I will continually trust in you. It comes back to him. There is nothing we can do to change who he is. Paul continues and backs up this claim in verse 4. And there what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 51.4. Psalm 51.4, if you don't know, most of you probably do, um, is, is where David has been confronted with his King David, and the Old Testament's been confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. And so now he's being confronted, he's been confronted, and, and David's response is that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. That's what we see in verse 4 here of Romans 3. David agrees with God that he has no excuses and no grounds to complain and that God is just in his judgments. David knows he deserved death and he knows God mercifully spared his life. So David's saying, God, you are completely right in your judgments and I am completely wrong and guilty before you. And so what Paul's doing is using this quote to show that God is just, is just as faithful and righteous when he judges someone for their sin as he is when he saves someone according to his promise. And y'all, there's no way to reconcile that in human reason. And so for some of us, that may be a big challenge. Because human reason is still the pinnacle of what we think is most important. So it's a hard truth. But I also think it's a comforting truth. Because the one thing we can say for sure is that God doesn't change. And God is faithful and he is righteous. And then it brings us to our third point even when it may not feel that way to us. Look at verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human terms. Again, what's happening here is the same way we think sometimes. Sometimes. 
the objection Paul's receiving to the message of the gospel here um, is that, is, is paraphrase goes like this. If our sin is necessary for God to show his wisdom, his love, his care, and his mercy and salvation, then doesn't that mean that God is unrighteous to judge us for something that he used for a good outcome? Today, it might sound like, well, that person over there, you know, that person should not have done that really horrible, awful thing that they did to that other person. But you know, that other person, did you hear that that other person forgave them for it publicly? And that other person is telling people about, using that to tell people about God's love? And so wouldn't God really just be unjust to hold this person accountable um, for their sin? You tracking with me? I'll say it in a different way. Doesn't the end that everything's okay and it's being used for good now justify the means? That sounds more familiar, right? And so that's what the argument here is. It's like, well, something good came out of it. God's righteousness is being shown. So, so surely, surely he is unjust to inflict wrath on us is what Paul is showing here. That's human reason. But I want to make sure you don't miss how Paul responds in verse five. What does he do? He actually apologizes in a sense for stating this in a human way. He's like, man, this sounds so absurd. It's like he almost couldn't write it. You know, like I wrote this out, but I couldn't even write it because this is so ridiculous. He's like, this is an ungodly thought. It misunderstands the totality of man's sin and any suggestion that God would be unjust in anything he does. And then he says in verse six, by no means, again, same phrase, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? Paul, again, is saying, if God is unjust, then he cannot rightly judge anyone. Even those people that you think are the worst, there's no means for judging anything, for dealing with anything, if God is unjust. But let me tell you what it also means. If God is unjust, then our sin is not paid for. Because in his justice, he placed our sin on his perfect son, Jesus Christ. The only one who could take it. If he's unjust and it's just kind of whatever, then he could have placed that on anyone. But there was only one. Emmanuel, God with us. And he placed it on him. He is faithful, he is righteous, he is just. But verses seven through nine show us something that'll probably sound familiar to you. When you're on, let's, let's use social media as an example, right? We could use other things, but when you're on social media and let's say you're not in the argument, you're just watching, right? And people get in an argument about something, 
Right? What happens usually? Well, first, you know, they're, they're, it might be civil for a second, but how does it go from there? It ends up getting, and, and I watch it over and over and over again with people that I think are pretty intelligent, and it comes down to you're dumb, you're an idiot, you don't hold the same view I do. Over and over and over again. Well, Paul, in the way he's talking here in these next few verses, is kind of going, they're, they're to the, the, these, these opponents are to the point of um, just making absurd accusations. And so that's what we see in verse, uh, where, where Paul is going in verse seven. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And so it said differently, if my lie, my sin magnifies God's truthfulness and increases his glory, then how can he condemn me? And then Paul in verse eight, this whole thing builds up to where Paul says, and it's like he's finally just throwing his arms up in the air, like seriously? Because what, are the, what do they say there? And why not do good or why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Why not do evil that good may come? And Paul, Paul's like, and he says this again in Romans um, chapter six, verse one, but he, there he goes, shall we sin so that grace may abound? How does it play out in day-to-day -day life? I just, someone shared something with me in between the services I forgot to pull it up on my phone, um, but he was telling me that, that um, an atheist recently posted, wow, it would be so much easier to be a, to be a Christian than an atheist because then I could say, well, at least God will forgive me for whatever I do. I'd love to have a further conversation there, but Paul's saying, they're charging me, charging us with saying, hey, just go sin more so that grace may abound. And rather than dealing with that here, is that their condemnation is just because now they're just making stuff up. So now we come back. God is faithful and righteous in all that he does. And so he's given us his word that we may know him, we may grow in him. He is faithful and righteous in all that he does. And so there's nothing we can do to change who he is. He is faithful and righteous in all that he does, even when it might not feel that way to us. How do we know that ultimately? It's the answer I hope the kids can give back there. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus came so that God did not have to change his character. He could deal with our sin so that we might be his children, sons and daughters of him, learning to walk with him through whatever we face in this life, even when we struggle to believe that he is faithful and righteous. So as we prepare this morning for the Lord's table, I want to ask you to just take a moment, take a few moments,
And I want you to ask God right now. First, if you're not sure where you're struggling to believe that he is faithful and righteous, most of you probably can already be like, yeah, I got this situation. I know this thing going on. I've got all this. But if you're struggling with that, first stop and ask him, show me where I'm struggling to believe you are faithful and righteous this morning. And then when he does, ask him to, one, ask him to increase your faith this morning. As we come to his table, as we come to this picture, this reality of what he has done for us. So take a few minutes before him, and then I'll bring us back together at the Lord's table um, after that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, Lord, we come as those who, Lord, acknowledge that we find times where we struggle to trust that you are faithful and righteous. Lord, we believe it, but it's hard to trust it. Lord, you tell us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, Lord, you are faithful and just. You are righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as your people this day, Lord, we come to this table and we ask that through it, you would point us to Jesus. Lord, that you would grow our faith by your grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He says that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today we proclaim that he is faithful, that he is righteous, and we see it because of what he's done through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this table today is for you to come. If, if, you, have, if you are here today and you have acknowledged that you are a sinner and, and that you have desperate need of God's grace and that he is your hope, then this table is for you to come, not as perfect people, we say it regularly, there's none of those. But to come as those who say, I know I need Jesus. And I need him to grow my faith by his grace today. If that's where you are, come to this table with joy, with anticipation I mean, what he will do. But if you're here today and you're saying, well, he's shown me this sin in my life and I'm not willing to repent of that, to seek to turn from it, 
to seek to follow him in obedience. And he says, don't come to this table. We would encourage you instead of doing so that you would reflect on these things we've talked about. Ask him to give you the faith and the strength to change that. And then finally today for our youngest children, um, we ask that um, you, you, if they've yet, not yet professed faith, that, you ask that we ask you not to bring them to the table. But instead, some weeks we encourage you to bring them forward to have the elders pray for them. Um, today, as we pass the trays, we want to now, in partnership with you, put that back to you um, as you do at home and ask you, you can talk to them, tell them what we're doing here, teach them, encourage them um, today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take these ordinary things, this bread and this cup, and that by them that you would minister your grace and you would grow our faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
I'm going to ask that um, if you're able to please stand with me. Jesus' body was given for you. Take, eat. And his blood was poured out, demonstrating that he is faithful and righteous in calling you his children. Enjoy his grace. And so, Lord, again, we say thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are righteous, that you continue to work in your people. Grow our faith. Give us great joy, Lord, in knowing that we are yours. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Weekly, we remind you, um, at this point in the service, that God has called us in response to who he is and what he's done. He's called us to live lives um, that are generous. That includes with our finances. You can see the ways to give on the screen behind me. That's also with the the talents he's given us, um, the different opportunities and resources he's given us. And so we just want to remind you regularly to be saying, Lord, Are there ways in my life that you want me to keep growing in being generous to those around me? Pastor John, um, Carrie Ann and I will be out in the the welcome area. I'm at the uh, pastor's corner. If you have questions about anything today or want to talk about anything you've heard, we'd love to talk with you. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to meet you, uh, maybe for the first time. But um, please, please take the moment and and speak with us there if, if you would like to do so. But now I want you to ask you to, if, if you're willing, and, and we, as a custom here, we, we hold our hands open, and it's nothing magical, but it's to say, Lord, I want to receive what you have. And this is from his word, his blessing to you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at thevinecc. Have a great week.